I'm Josh Alvarez. And I'm Liam O'Donnell. And you're listening to episode 149 of Cinepunks. We're doing the thing. We're doing the thing, y'all. Holla at your boys. Cinepunks in the house. Man, I've never, ever declared to be in the house. And it's funny. Like, so I spent last week in Rehoboth Beach sure. with a um, record producer to the stars, Mr. Brian McTernan, recording vocals for the new Cross Keys record, which is as yet unnamed. But, um, we were talking about the nature of being a frontman for a for a band, specifically for a high energy band. And uh Brian was saying how like he never does the what's up, New Jersey? <laughs> I was like, dude, if sure, I saw sure. Be Well and you said to me at the top of your set, What's up, New Jersey? I one hundred percent would throw up on the floor and then leave and never see you again. And he was like, yeah, that's what people want. They want that from Mike, too. And then I was just trying to imagine Mike McTernan starting a damnation set with, Ooh, what's up, Philadelphia? <laughs> like, nah, 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 nah. like, it would be so weird. And it just makes you think, man, when I become a rock star and pretend not to know everybody, it's going to be so awesome because I'm going to do all of that shit. You know what's funny is I have, when we get to whacking on track, I have a whole thing to say about stage banter and when it works and when it doesn't work. So we'll, oh, we'll, when we'll it come, doesn't work, we'll, we'll come, awful. we'll come back to this topic, but right. I agree. It would be strange. I, I, I think you're actually very charming live, but <laughs> it's, but it's not like a rocker attitude. It's very much like a, all right, I guess we're here to, and we're doing this thing. <laughs> and I think that that vibe is a little bit more funny. I, no, I think it's a little bit more appropriate. I think the only time I could get into that the vibe you were describing is if it's a persona. You know what I mean? Yeah, like someone yeah, is yeah, yeah. inhabiting. If I'm seeing a Guns N' Roses and Axl Rose does not do that, guess what? You well, just fucked I mean, up Axl Rose. From what w, I W Axl Rose. I don't think he can hit the notes anymore. I think that's a bigger concern. I is mean, that my man can't sing anymore. Yeah, but you know what? Me and Melani saw him. We saw Guns N' Roses with him and Slash on that tour, like right before pandemic. And it was so much fun. And I had the greatest time. Some people are like, you know, he's a little sharp on those highs. Like, yeah, okay. Maybe he is, but he's also in guns and fucking roses and it's the greatest concert ever. So fuck you. you know I saying? think you're a crazy person. Cause I've seen video from that tour and it was Motley crew level embarrassing. Oh, I love Motley crew too, though. Have you seen the videos of them performing in the last 10 years? The dude have I can't... seen them in the last 10 years? Multiple times? Do I have tickets for them this September with Poison and Joan Jett and the Blackhearts and Def Leppard? Yes. There, there must be something wrong with you. There's no fucking way, man. That Vince, listen, Vince man, Neil can't hit a note like if you paid him a million dollars a note. He couldn't do it. All I'm saying is rock and roll will never die, Liam. <laughs> <laughs> I think it will actually. This is, I, you know, what's funny. We're joking a little bit here, but I do think this is a big difference. You like rock, yeah? No, for me, my relationship to rock is the way many people's relationship is to country music. You know, there's a couple of standout artists that they respect, but overall, it's embarrassing. That's how I feel Oof. about straight. If it, if it's just normal ass rock and roll, you should feel bad. <laughs> you should be like a little embarrassed that you're doing it. Like, okay, here we go. I mean, obviously there's exceptions like, you know, Lemmy was a God and Motorhead is amazing, but like just standard rock. Get the fuck out of my well, face. Well, I mean like, okay, define your terms. Though. What do you consider standard rock? Most rock. What are we talking about here? I mean, okay. I don't know. I, I, you, I'll, go I ahead, I'll go ahead and rock say rock and roll. I'll go ahead and say guns and roses is pretty good. 
But if the man can't hit the notes, it's a waste of time. I don't think it would be interesting. Motley Crue sucks top to bottom. Get the fuck Oof. out of my face. Out of here. Same with, out of here. I think Motley Crue goes in the same pot with like Quiet Riot, man. It's not my shit. I can't get into that. Uh, Quiet Riot's dope. I love Slade. I love all Ugh. that stuff. I don't give a shit. Ugh. I love all of it. I think there's some ripping wasp songs. You know, I think. Well, they, that's they on got, you. That's that's your fault. But they, like other they, than that. They do. They have some ripping songs. But like <laughs> the, any any of that like hair metal that doesn't fall more into like the fast thrash category is is almost entirely boring some of it gets so corny that it gets fun but a lot of it i'm not into it and like classic rock like i don't know i i like some kinks records i guess so you don't uh, like you'll listen to credence and it won't do anything for you it's fine credence is more like uh in the other direction of it's unoffensive like i think that's perfect like doctor's office music that is the essential doctor's office music Mm. That and and well, I was gonna say that and Phil Collins, but actually Phil Collins has bangers and Creedence. I one hundred percent will fight over Phil Collins because I love that man. No jacket yeah. required either, Liam. I mean, just so you know, I'm just saying. Like, I, I do think Phil Collins has some bangers, but it is it has become <laughs> doctor's office music. Like, as much as I do think Phil Collins has some some hot numbers, overall, it's sort of what you expect to hear at the doctor's office. Wow. Uh, no, I. It, but here's the thing, though. When it does come on in the doctor's office, I'm stoked. <laughs> like, yes. I think it depends on the song, though. I don't. I don't. I'm not a full throated defender of the whole catalog. But I Oof. think it, when people are like, "Oh, it it sucks," I'm like, "Well, no, that's not. That's obviously not true." And he was really doing some like very innovative things as well as being good songs. He's also very creative and doing some yeah, things. Yeah, so, and plays drums. That shit is cool. But uh, who do we want to thank, Liam? Oh, yeah, I guess we're there. Okay, so first and foremost, <laughs> let's thank our uh, Patreon subscribers. Uh, we love you. Yet again, we promise to offer more things, and who knows when we'll fulfill that promise. But we'll we'll, <laughs> we'll figure it out. We're, we're, we're trying to figure it out. Uh, we, you know, I think we need to nail a regular schedule that we can do more stuff on Patreon, but we just really appreciate you all for supporting us. And, uh, you know, feel free to tell a friend about it. That'd be really great. We also want to thank our friends over at LVAC, Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. Uh, Josh, if I was going to get some cod pieces that said <laughs> rock and roll is overrated, where would I right. get those printed? Uh, you could go to LVAC, but Chris Reject will laugh you out of the building. And he'll say rock and roll will never die and then spit on you. This proves you have not talked about music yeah, enough to. Yeah, I know. To... That's true. I don't, Chris, I don't Reach, Chris Reject literally rejects the entire quicksand catalog because it sounds too much like rock. Yeah, but he also rejects Liam O'Donnell. Yeah, that's categorically. fair. Categorically. So, that's fair. Yeah, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. I think it's fair to say. I don't know. You know what the funny thing about LVAC is? I'm, I'm pretty sure that this will post after the announcement is made, but... um. The Let's Hang Out Bash on May 6th. Little yes. Joshy Alvarez is coming back to, to the Lehigh Valley, baby. I love that. Well, I love yeah. that. It's going to be wild because it's us and Slingshot Dakota and wrestlers. Wow. I am very salty you're playing that because I can't go <laughs> and I want to see you. I, not only do I want to see you, I want to see you in the Lehigh Valley. I think it'll be fun to see the collection of freaks and weirdos that come out to that show. I think that's oh, gonna it's going to be a wild time. I hope Adriana comes out. I already told Chris. Well, I mean, Chris knows obviously because he's done it. And I told um, Kylie. I told as much people as I know in the Lehigh Valley. I'm pretty sure, which isn't that many people, but you know, it'd be good to see them all. That's all. I agree. That's awesome. 
Uh, so so hey. LVAC will will print the 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 cod pieces that you need, um, because yep. they're good like that. So yeah. holler at your boys. You yeah, know what I'm saying xlvacx.com. Go get something printed. It's great. Uh, Tell them Punk sent you with an yeah, X. Yeah, yep. Please do. We also want to uh, thank our friends over at EssexCoffeeRoasters.com. Who who runs Essex, Josh? Funny you should mention that. Me and my friend Brian McTernan were discussing how awesome our mutual friend Aaron Dahlbeck is, who runs Essex Coffee Roasters and who happens to be on tour with Brian right now playing with Hot Water Music and Strike Anywhere. A little short East Coast jaunt. And uh, I'll be seeing them on Saturday, on Sunday, on Sunday. But um, yeah, Aaron Dahlbeck is the greatest, truly a wonderful human being, always trying to help people out, always trying to be a good dude. And he succeeds because he's one of the best dudes I know. And uh, that said, his coffee is also pretty damn good. Not as good as Aaron is, but, you know, Aaron's the best. (laughs) So whatever. But um, yeah, if you order from EssexCoffeeRoasters.com and you put in C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X at checkout, you will get 10% off of your entire order. So dope. So I like dope. how the how the Essex coffee kind of turned into a compliment. Like, yeah. yeah, the coffee's really good. Not as good as Aaron, though, but it's pretty good. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, Essex is great. I drink it all the time. Um, they also have tea and apparel. Just check it out. EssexCoffeeRoasters.com. Get that 10% off. We, of course, want to thank the uh, editor of this episode and, you know, really our uh, unofficial producer on, on multiple things that we do because he helps us with technical stuff, with sound. Uh, we want to thank our friend Sharky over at uh, Mechanical Shark uh, Media, uh, also the co-host of your YouTube show. Yeah. Showtime with Sharky and Josh. We will be bringing that back. Don't worry about it, people. I know you're waiting with bated breath for me and Sharky's repartee concerning movies that Sharky doesn't like and that I do like, (laughs) which is a fun conversation. That's all I'm saying, man. I love that shit. Yeah. So So Mechanical Shark, they do video production. They do post-production. They do practical effects, puppetry, special effects. They obviously do sound production. They do live videos. Yeah, live streaming. Whatever it is, they can help you out with uh, a whole host of media stuff. Plus, Sharky's fun to work with, and he's really creative, and he's really brilliant, and we love him. So thank you, Sharky, for your help with everything with Cinepunks. Uh, Yeah, so that's everybody we got to thank. Now we got to do something else, Josh. What is it again? Uh, I don't know, Liam. What do we got to do? We don't got to do anything but stay brown and die. That's the I only, like, I like all that. the items on my agenda. Stay brown, mm. die, have to do those things. Uh, no, there's something else. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. There is a gnawing sensation that I'm missing something that we normally do. <laughs> is this bit ever going to get old? I don't think so, is the thing. You know what I mean? I think this will be funny every single time. When we get to the bicentennial episode of 200, well, this will still be funny then, too. I guarantee you. It's whacking on track. Whacking on track. My new bit is to trick you with it. Is to like just get the conversation going and then trick you with it. I like that. That's good. I like because well, you like did it to me a few times. Liam. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, I know it's funny. So this is this will be the thing. It's like we who, who can trick the other person with it without just jumping into it immediately. Like right, you know what I mean. Right, like we right. got to start the convo, but at some point one of us is gonna just someone's do gonna it. drop the shoe, and yeah. that's gonna be hilarious every time. So, Liam, what have yes. you done recently that is whack? And what have you done recently that is on track? All right, y'all. Here's the thing. I haven't done a ton. Um, 
since we last recorded, you know, like I, I went on my way to go see the Batman so we could talk about it. And then yeah. I haven't really been back to the movies at all. And there hasn't been a lot on any sort of streaming thing that I had a chance to catch. Um, so I haven't really done much. I did, though, go check out a show. And I don't think we've recorded. No, no, no. Because this was just a, like a week ago. So on uh, March 17th, St. Patrick's Day, I went to go see Drug Church. One step closer, soul blind and lure or lurk at uh, the Beat Kitchen in Chicago. Uh, nice. So that's the that's just the tour. That was no openers. Uh, lurk is from Chicago, but uh, that's just the, it's a four band tour. And honestly, it, I got in thanks to uh, the hookup because basically I had bought tickets for the night before. And I couldn't go because I actually recorded the episode of Horror Business that is now available. So um, I couldn't get out there. And honestly, even if I didn't have to record, Josh, I didn't have a babysitter. I couldn't find a babysitter. Mm, I was, I mean, don't tell Justin. I'm sure he's not listening to this. He probably is. Um, <laughs> don't tell Justin. But I was willing to cancel on them if I could have found a babysitter Oof. because I because I had bought the tickets, man. I paid the, the money. Hanging sword of Damocles. I would have done it, but I no, hear no babysitter. So I recorded, which is great. We had a great episode. It was fun to talk to Chris Axe. That's all great, but. I was just like, I guess I'm going to miss the tour. And then, you know, uh, detail. I'll keep the details to myself, but through the help of various people, I got in. So nice. went, went to the show. Was uh, it a good show? How was Drug Church? Uh, let me give the quick rundown here. Lurk, I very much recommend people check out their EPs. Uh, they have a full length out right now. I think it's full length. It seems a little short, actually, for a full length. But let's just say their latest record, it's not at my alley. But their old stuff I like a lot. Chicago band. Uh, their second release, it takes the sound that I think they do the most, which is kind of like a noisy, upbeat post-punk, you know? Sort of like a, like a, like a, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a band to compare it to. Maybe like a Total Control or something, but okay. like, but like more uh, melodic in some ways. On that second EP, though, so that's the EP that came out after their demo, mm. they also add in some stompiness. So it kind of sounds like like a, 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 a noisy, post-punk, even post-hardcore band, but with some like stompy parts that remind me of like an 86 mentality. You know what I mean? Nice. Like it, has like a, awesome. it has like a heavy vibe. Then the next record before the new one, it's a little less stompy, but there's still some like heavy parts. There's even some like weird kind of almost dive bomby guitar parts. And then the new record, it just sounds like rock and roll, man. Going along with the conversation we just had. It very <laughs> so much- So you don't like it. It very much, like if you like sassy, almost dancey rock and roll. You ah. might you might love that new Lurk record. I believe I, they call that San Diego in the 90s, but go on. Uh, no, thank you. It's <laughs> not for me. And that's no judgment on them. But I, honestly, I thought live that maybe the live songs would carry some energy. And it just felt like two different bands to me, the, the variation between the sounds. So I wasn't stoked on it. Then that band Soul Blind played. Josh, you remember the '90s, right? I well, you're yeah. you're a little older than me, right? So much older. So when, old. No, not that. You're like a year <laughs> older than me. Uh, but you 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 probably had a different relationship to when kids were wearing like big jeans with like a huge Allison Chains T-shirt and yeah. Converse and like a chain around their neck. You or were a little wallet. Yeah, I remember yeah, all that. You yeah. remember all that, but you weren't really part of that, right? Like you kind of no. like skipped that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I didn't totally miss that, but I missed a lot of it because while I was wearing big pants, 
they were more like parachute pants and I, I uh breakdancing pants. Yeah. And while I did have a necklace, it wasn't a chain, it was a straight edge bead necklace. You know what I mean? Like there uh, were yeah, subtle I had one of those, yeah. Su- subtle differences between me and what you would consider a alt rocker of the nineties. Mm. And Soul Blind, not only do they sound like alt rock of the nineties, they look like alt rock of the nineties. Like the the drummer had a black smashing pumpkin shirt on with a tight chain around his neck and a middle part that went bet- behind his ears. You know that wow. look? You know? Yeah, I remember that look. Yeah, yeah. The, the lead singer looks like he could be like in Alice in Chains. Like there's just the whole vibe was very. Now the sound is sort of a smushing together of grunge with uh shoegaze and post hardcore so there's Oof. parts with with a couple of parts that flirt with the dreaded new metal but i won't put that on them because i think they wouldn't like that but there's there's some there's some harmonic stuff that kind of made me think of new metal a lot of it is like because the vocals are a little more high-pitched it could kind of flirt with shoegaze or even like heavier emo but a lot Mm. of it is like more influenced by like traditional grunge you know um it's all very do we call it grunge gaze i i'm not into putting a label on it like even what i'm (laughs) saying y'all is very limited and i bet you the guys in the band would be bummed by me being so specific to me that's what it sounded like but maybe maybe they have other influences i'm not hearing i will say it it just doesn't it's just not for me, really. I think partly because it's very mid-tempo. It's very sometimes the tempo went down to even like a like a sludge tempo, but the Ooh. but the guitars were so fuzzy that you wouldn't think of metal. You know what I mean? Mm, it's, yeah. Which I guess is like shoegaze, but my favorite stuff has a little bit more of an of a beat to it, like a little faster, like a little bit more mm, like more a, aggressive. A, adrenaline. Yeah. yeah. And this didn't have that, but it was very heavy and very fuzzy. And I think I don't want to disrespect the dudes. I, in other words, I'm, I'm saying a lot of words just to say, this is one of those bands you see and go, that was very good, but I don't think it was for me. You know what I mean? Fair like enough. Yeah. they're very good musicians. And I think if I really subjected myself to it over a long period of time, like I really checked it out, it could grow on me and maybe I would get into it. But my vibe when I saw them was no, I don't, I don't, <laughs> that's not for me. Uh, and then um, one step, one step oh, closer. Yeah, one played. Step closer. Yeah. I love one step closer. Uh, speaking of stage banter, you know, uh, lurk had like, Hey, we're Chicago fun, whatever. Um, Soulblind had like no stage banter. They were very much just like, all right, cool, whatever. One Step Closer was doing a lot of, all right, guys, move up, move up, stage dive, stage dive. And they just kept saying it because they really, I, I understand, they really wanted that to be the vibe. But you know how it is. You can only, there's a certain amount of times you can say it and it yeah. feels like you're Scott Vogel. And then there's the next level where people are like, okay, shut the fuck up about it. Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It just got to that point And I felt bad because I don't think they were trying to hammer the point home. It's just how it happened, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but they were still good. Like they sounded great. I had fun. Um, and then Truck Church was great. I've never seen, uh, well, I saw a few songs at a fest in Asbury Park, but I didn't like pay a lot of attention uh, at the time, like I, I was like, oh, this is pretty good, but I wasn't like invested. This is the first mm. time I've seen him since I've really gotten into the band, and yeah. they were great. Like Pat is an amazing frontman. The band was really tight. The crowd was very much like a uh, not a hardcore crowd, but I think that's good, you know. Mm. And it's fun 
standing back a little bit and watching people like stage dive and crowd surf and stuff. That got that was kind of fun, you know. It was a fun time, yeah. and I like I like uh, Pat's vibe and. The whole thing was chill. So everybody sounded good. One Step Closer and Drug Church was a little bit more my vibe. But mm. I feel like it overall was a fun show. I got to see some cool people. It was it was a good time. That sounds amazing. That's all I got, though. I'm done. That's it. That's all my stuff. Cool. All right. I did a lot. I bet you recorded. did. I bet you did. So I went to New York City. Me and Melani went like two weeks ago. We saw Donnie Benet at the Bowery. If you don't know who Donnie Benet is... Google it. It's a good time. It's like it's like the Quincy Jones rock of the 80s that I love, but it's done by a balding Australian and it's amazing. So we saw that at the Bowery. That was like two Fridays ago. And uh, we went out after that. After the gig, we went to Katz's Deli and we split a pastram because that's what you do in New York City. And then um, went to the hotel. And the next morning, we woke up, got breakfast, and then we went to. Um, we went to Times Square to TKTS and we managed to procure two seats to David Byrne's American Utopia for half price in the orchestra section. So we went and we saw a Broadway show and it was, have you heard, have you seen the Spike Lee version of American Utopia? No, dude, I don't even like the talking heads. I don't. I tried. I can't get into it. Adriana Gober tells me I have to listen more. I'm willing to accept the fact that I haven't heard enough. That said, this show was fucking amazing. If you've seen the Spike Lee video of it, it's exactly that. The same players in the video are the same players that played when we saw it. So it was so rad. It was like seriously one of the most fun music shows I've ever seen in my life. And I 100% advocate doing the cheap ticket route because it's so dope. And, like, we got the tickets a half hour before call time, like, for the show, you know? So it was, like, bought the tickets, boom, right in there. So that was 100% on track. And then after that, we left and went to Junior's and got a piece of cheesecake because that's what you do when you go on Broadway. And then later that night, we went to New York City Film Forum because they're doing a retrospective of Toshiro Mifune movies. So they showed Throne of Blood, which I had actually never seen before, and they were showing it on 35. So we got to see that, and that was awesome. It was super fun, like Macbeth tale, you know what I mean? Like, But told through the lens of uh, Kurosawa and with Toshiro Mifune in front of the camera, and it was awesome. And then we left there at like 11 o'clock at night, and we went to the Comedy Cellar, and we saw Dave Attell. We didn't get home till like two in the morning, but it was like I'd never been to the comedy cellar before and Melani had been before. But the night before there was like a drop in of like all these other comics like Chris Rock dropped in the night before. And we're like, oh, shit. So like that's what they do on those late the late matinees or the late shows like just famous comics like to drop in and do a set. So that's what we're hoping for. Didn't happen, but still had a great time. And uh, then we came home the next day. So that was like my New York weekend. This is pretty dope. That's so great. that was on track. The other thing that I did was um, the other day we went to Bragg Dinner, and we saw with a friend of the show, Dan Gross, former guest, former guest Dan Gross and his wife, Holly, we went and saw Miss Pangina Heels, the Thailand queen who was unceremoniously kicked off of uh, Drag Race UK versus the world by Blue Hydrangea, who ended up actually winning the whole thing. Uh, spoiler alert. But we saw her because she was at Fabrica in Philadelphia, and uh, it was fun. We had dinner, and then we watched all the drag queens do the performances. And then we, I dipped out of there, and I went to Underground Arts. 
and I managed to catch Plosives. Do you know this band? No. They have the best record of the year in my mind right now. It's John Reese on guitar and the singer from Pinback. And it was at Underground Arts. And I got there and Bo and Shay were there, like all the homies. And we got to watch them. I got there right in time for them to go on. And it was so much fun. Like that band fucking rules. I love them so much. Check out their record. Just came out last week. It's self-titled, but um, it's super duper, like high energy, super fun rock and roll from what you'd expect from John Reese. You know what I mean? Like, he is probably the greatest rhythm guitarist of all time. And, dude, this record rips. It's so much fun. So, all on track. Oh, and then I got tattooed. That's all pretty good. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about this plosives business. I feel like this is something oh, I need to so investigate. Good. You know, I'm I'm iffy on your man. There's only some of his things that I like. I get it. But that's okay because, you know, people are allowed to have poor taste. <laughs> I, you know, you can throw that in my face all you want, but I feel like the the consensus is with me when it comes to your your faves rocket from the crypt. Oh my god, greatest band of all time. No, thank you. Oh yeah, one hundred percent my shit. Them, all that, all of it. But this plosives record, dude, is so good. Like it's just super fun, is the thing. And I, do you listen to Pinback at all? I have. It's been a while. They are one of the most musical bands to do it. And like that singer has an amazing voice and him singing with John Reese on rhythm guitar is amazing. It's just so good. 100% love it. So that's all I got. I want I want to believe you. Yeah, I know you do. But you're like, I'm sorry. My poor taste is getting in the way. My usual John Reese thing is like, you know, is it drive like Jehu? No, <laughs> then I am not interested. Well, that's not quite true because I heard some Pitchfork songs and those are pretty good too. But that's that's about it for me. That's that's where I'm done. Mm. I know, well, I know. I it's get sacrilege. It. It's fine. I know. It's cool. hey, you know what? There's stuff I like that you don't get into. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, it's true. A lot of stuff. And you're wrong on all of it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Speaking of things that are hard to get into, we never said what this episode was about. Hey, oh, guys. Yeah. We're hey. doing a triple, a triple feature of Michelangelo Antonioni movies. What are those movies, Josh? We started with La Ventura, 1960, and then we went into the second part. It's a trilogy, a thematic trilogy, much like the trilogy of Vengeance by Park Chan-wook, which Liam and I are both very well-versed in. Mm-hmm. This is a trilogy of movies by Michelangelo Antonioni. Um all starring his muse, Monica Vitti. And the first one was La Ventura. The second one was La Notte. And the third one was L'Eclipse. And man, what a journey. It was uh, like, I think, are these called the Decadence Trilogy, I think? Something yes, like that? Yes, the Decadence yeah. Trilogy. Or, yeah, because it's, it's, a, it's, it's a ride, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So after the break, we will get into Michelangelo Antonioni's Decadence Trilogy. In a bit.
we're back, and we're here going to talk about three movies: the decadence, or the yeah, the decadence trilogy by Michelangelo Antonioni. So, Liam, what is your relationship yeah. with Antonioni? I had no relationship with Antonioni until grad school, and mm-hmm. I was in um, a class at Princeton University, not at the seminary, taught by Jeffrey Stout, uh, called. Um, uh, Religion in Modern Thought and Film. And basically it was a class, uh, a religious studies class that uh, explored the ways that various ideas and theories in religious studies could be observed in art, specifically cinema, though he used other art in the class too, but we were required to watch movies. So for me, that was like a perfect class. And so he showed Mm -hmm. us uh, The Passenger uh, with Jack Nicholson. And I had never even heard of Antonioni before. Um, So I watched The Passenger and it kind of blew me away, but also kind of frustrated and confused me as well. And I was like, what the fuck is going on? And then I realized that uh, a favorite movie of mine, Blowout, Mm. uh, was basically based off of a film by Antonioni, Blow Up. And that was the next Antonioni movie I saw. And then that was it. I never, I had in my mind, I want to see these three movies. I still want to see uh, Red Desert. I want to see the movie that everyone hates, you know, Zabriskie Point. I want to see the later movies that people don't really talk about after The Passenger. I want to, I want to know more about him, but he's on a list of people that I still haven't taken the time to explore, whether that's uh, Pasolini. I've only seen four Pasolini films or whether that's even, um, even um uh our man who did uh nights uh of in Cabria or what nights of Cabria. Yeah, Cabria. Fellini. I've only seen four Fellini films or mm. five. No, I've seen five now. But still, which sounds like a lot. If you're more of a casual film fan, that might sound like a lot. But for a lot of these people who are very influential on modern cinema, mm-hmm. it's worth seeing as many of their films as you can find, because chances are a lot of the stuff like watching this film that we're about to discuss, La Ventura, and realizing it was filmed in 1959 and came out in 1960, so many directors are borrowing the the visual style of that movie. And and mm. and I'd say of all three of these films, yeah, even if narratively they're a little more direct, like I think it's harder to absorb the narrative style of Antonioni, which we'll get into. But he is not as interested in a direct. Uh, narrative clarity. These are almost like slice of life mood pieces in some ways, even though dramatic events happen in them. Sometimes Mm -hmm. they aren't interested in giving you a clear, this is the beginning. This is the middle. This is the end. They all start mid story and end in an unresolved, possibly unsatisfying way, depending on what your vibe is when you're watching it. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that's also influential, but less, less broadly whereas the visuals of these movies it changed the way that other people made movies for yeah. a lot of directors mm-hmm. absolutely so how about you were you, have you been a big antonioni fan in the past no but i mean like i was reading up on that nouvelle vague movement in the 60s and his name popped up in addition to all other directors that we love right like right bergman was a part of it agnes varda was a part of it um uh, a couple other directors, uh, I can't think of any right off the top of my head right now, but 
there was that whole movement of Italian cinema and world cinema, really, at that time. And a bunch of directors that are in that class we love, including Fellini, including, like, again, Bergman. You know what I mean? Like, that's huge. Also, um, I just have a reverence for Italian movies. Sure. You know yeah, I, mean? I know like, that. Yeah. Um, yeah, Giuseppe Ternatore is one of my favorite directors, and I really love Cinema Paradiso. And, um, you know, I, I, well, that movie in particular, but also like the horror movies. We love Lucio Fulci. We love Mario Baba. We love like all these names. And they're all like, you know, these are Italian filmmakers. And from the 60s to the 70s to the 80s, all of that shit has always resonated with me for better or for worse. I don't know why. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like I, there's a thing about it, but. Maybe there is a thing about it, but I've always loved Italian directors. And I didn't know anything about Antonioni going into this. So I was just like, fuck it, let's just do it then. And I mean, for it's, some reason, I had already watched La Ventura. Like, when you were like, hey, what should we talk about? I was like, well, I saw La Ventura last night. Like, for no reason at all other than just want to see it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just like, okay. So, you know, if I'm going to put those two hours into work... Why not do an additional four hours that so we'll have something to talk about? How? I mean, you said, uh, yeah, that's we, we, this is a six hour thing. So let me just say up front A, we're not going to cover everything people want to know. Like, we don't have time tonight to. You know, it's funny. I've been listening to podcasts about this in preparation to yeah, yeah. discuss this. And like, one show I listened to had like two dudes that were discussing it. And they're like, wow, like super like hyped, which, okay. I'll give you that. Like, you're hyped on talking about films just like I am, but I can't imagine having, like, a frat boy essence going into a discussion of La Ventura. I mean, people are different, <laughs> man, whatever. But Yeah, so, I get that, but being like, yo, bro, it was sick, La Ventura. Like, it was just, like, a weird discussion to listen to. So, and, uh, I, you know, I don't think okay we're going to... it, but it was yeah. I don't think we're going to get into everything that people would want because, you know, I don't I think it's hard to do three movies. We have right. trouble doing two movies justice. Three movies is difficult. But these three go We're together. Automatically yeah, linked. Yeah. It's, it's, so. it, would, it would be hard to separate them. Um, so I, I think that's worth saying up front. Second, um, it's worth acknowledging that Antonioni was controversial to a lot of his contemporaries. Like Bergman famously dissed him. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Fellini dissed him. Uh, a, bu- a bunch of uh, directors. I mean, uh, the, the there was a feeling from some of the French New Wave people that he kind of missed the boat on the politics of it all. Famously, uh, uh, there was a film critic, uh, Robin Wood, who wrote a whole long piece just called Antonioni uh, dissecting his politics and accusing him of not really having any. And, and so, um, you know, Antonioni is kind of controversial. However, also influential. Scorsese, Kurosawa, De Palma, uh, um, um, Francis Ford Coppola, a lot of directors have also talked about his deep influence on them and including more modern people like uh, 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 our, fr- our friend um, where Seth Akun. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to try the first thing. We're at Seth Akun. Or uh, our, a peach pong. We're at Seth Akun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I wasn't going to go for a peach pong. I, yeah, I have trouble You got it. it. Anyways, it. anyways, the point is he also referenced and quite obviously like that cinemas, you know, there's so much from Antonioni and that. So I think I think he's very influential and very important, um, even if there was a bit of a souring on him at a time when I think movies with more of a clear 
messaging were kind of the hot thing, right? They kind yeah. of became the du jour thing. And I think his movies, you know, very much are not that. But let's start with La Ventura. Uh, for people who, who maybe are listening to this bravely and haven't seen it, uh, <laughs> La Ventura, which is, I think, Italian for the adventure, right? Uh, and it's, a, no, it's a, the fling. The fling. Okay. And um, it's a, it's a film, uh, you know, to say it's about this is is silly, but it's about a disappearance, kind of. Um, but it's kind of. it's more about uh, two people who seem to be the only people interested in finding this missing woman, while the rest of the world doesn't seem to give a fuck, slowly kind of falling for each other while they search for her over a period of, like, maybe like months like mm. the time in the movie is all connected, but it's clear that time has passed during the course of the film. Uh, mm. So they're like falling for each other as they're looking for this uh, gentleman's, you know, lover. It's basically uh, her lover and her best friend yeah, uh, are looking for her after she disappears on yeah. a holiday yeah. to these islands. And they, they care, the they care about each other, but also they are sort of haunted by the idea that like, it's not okay that what brings them together is this missing girl. So it's like this thing. And then meanwhile, they're interacting with all these other very, everyone in it is very rich. Like socialite people that are just kind of just like this weird bourgeoisie class that doesn't feel that they've reached fulfillment. They're all like just yes. kind of sad. Yes. One <laughs> and, of the, uh, one of the videos I watched called uh, Antonioni's filmmaking, the cinema of absence and sort mm. of talking about the, the, the absence of not just characters who disappear or go missing, but the absence that people feel even in the presence of each other, that there's a gulf between them. And, and a lot of people refer to his cinema as being about alienation in a modern world. Mm. I think all of that is pretty apt, right? Like this yeah, is no a hundred percent. This is a dissection of loneliness. Yeah. And like, that's the thing. All three of them again are thematically linked. And to me, that's the central line that runs through all three of them. That there are these dramatic events that need to be taken care of that drive these narratives. But in the end, the main drive is the fact that these people can't seem to give a shit. I and think this movie is interesting, to too, because it's a movie that was plagued by horrible inconveniences. Like the islands, they film in these very rocky islands off the coast of Sicily. They were covered in angry birds and rats and poop. Like they were like, like filming on them took something like four months because it was just, it was like a disaster. And then the rest of the movie took a while to sort of get together. And there are parts of the movie that got cut for time because it's already a really fucking long movie. It's two hours and six minutes long, yeah. And they became the most important parts of the movie. Antonioni claims, and maybe this is wrong, but in an interview yeah. he claimed they that scripted, filmed, and then cut a scene where they find the missing the girl's body, body. Yeah, washing up on the shores Fuck. of the island. Fuck. Like, why would that be the thing that you cut out? But, well, okay. but I think it creates the movie, right? Like, one yeah. of the most important things about this movie that then influences the next two is that the ending is unresolved. There is no resolution in any of these movies. Mm. And, and you know, uh, famously uh, 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 literary critic Roland Barthes, uh, uh, French film uh, uh, literary critic talking about this movie that he's talking about Antonioni's these three movies suggests that um, a narrative with an ending suggests an ultimate truth. Here we are at the end. The end is happening. But with Antonioni, 
one of your questions when you're watching the movie is what happened before the movie started? And then when the movie's over, you're like, what happens now? Like there's no resolution of any kind. With all three of these movies, it just feels like we start in the middle of the story after something tremendous just happened and we missed it. Right. And it, I, I like stylistically as a, as a choice, it already starts you on unequal footing where you just don't know you're just kind of in and running. Which I found to be very intoxicating. I really found that to be compelling. And I mean, like, how many people have done that since, right? Like, sure, sure. From all genres of movie, not just like interpersonal dramas, you know what I mean? Like, you get in these like movies like Nobody, where Mr. Nobody, where he's like a fucking like military trained like fighting guy, but you don't know that you get there after that point, right? And it starts in the middle where he has to resurrect that. But like, this seems to be the seedling to that tree. You know what I mean? But, like, but I would say that, that decision had happened before Antonioni, but Antonioni never gives you a flashback. You only yeah. learn about the per, the person's history as they relate to it. And not everything is clear. Like, um, we, you know, we're not talking about the passenger, but one of the things I remember about the passenger is like Jack Nicholson's characters in this place investigating something. What is he investigating? They never tell you. It's never, it's just sort of not clear. And I think that's part <laughs> of his, his, but I do wonder, I bring it up to say, I wonder is, is La Ventura, the movie where he discovers that style that then he develops over the next two. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, is yeah, it, yeah. is it, it just. It does feel that way, right? Like that's right. him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like developing his voice. Sure. And he does it all with Monica VD in all three of the movies, who I think is amazing. Like, I I, resp- I understand that she was his muse, right? Like, they were married, and um, she was, like, his artistic vision. And I get that. But, man, she really is. Your eye just has to go to her in every scene that she's in. Well, and famously, they did, a f- uh, the, you know, the fourth movie, Red Desert, could yeah, be seen as color, maybe yeah. maybe connected to these three, but that's the movie where they got they they broke up, they got divorced, and she ended up marrying the cinematographer that he worked with on all four movies. Oh wow, that's yeah. insane. Yeah, but and I I understand Red Desert is great. I haven't seen it, but yeah, in these movies, like, and she doesn't play a central role in the second film, but she's still no. in it, and she's still very important. Yeah, and yeah, go I ahead. mean, like, but that second film also has Marcello Mastrioni in it. Yep. Who was in yep. Eight and a Half and who was in La Dolce Fida. And like, I love that guy. He is amazing. And in that movie, he's just as amazing. Because yeah. he's young in that movie. Holy shit. Yeah. But anyway, back to There's, La Ventura. I think um I think La Ventura it sets up the theme that we'll talk about in the next two movies, too. This idea of like identity and interchangeableness. Like uh Vittoria. Wait, is that the char- her character's name? Or is that her name mm. in one of the other movies? I think that's her name in one of the other movies. Monica okay. Vitti. Yeah. Yeah. Monica Vitti's character just replaces Anna. I, Anna's name is easy to remember. She just yeah. sort of becomes the blonde version of Anna for the dude, right? Like he, she mm-hmm. just sort of becomes her in some way, you know? Like she just replaces her. And then when she is distant, he just moves on to another girl. You know what I mean? Like there's this, yeah. mm-hmm. there's a sense in which. Neither one of them is happy. They can't really experience pleasure, but they're like looking for it. They're looking for some sort of fulfillment. And the movie kind of ends making it clear that like, or maybe not making it clear, but suggesting that 
maybe they'll never find that fulfillment. That they'll continue to just like reach for people, not really connect, and then hurt them in some way. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 for sure. It's interesting. It's 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 it's. There's another thing too. In um in this movie. And I think it's a theme in the other two, but it's very much present in La Ventura, which is this underlying theme of like um, uh, class issues and uh, uh, male sort of violence towards women. Because yeah. we have that, we have the character of the model, and it seems like she's doing some sort of like publicity stunt. But the publicity stunt is based on the idea that these Italian men can't handle the fact that her dress is ripped. And so they like, mm. she almost causes a riot by showing some thigh, right? And that yeah. seems funny almost, right? Like silly almost. But when you see the numbers of people, it's also menacing, right? Like mm-hmm. what were these men going to do because of her thigh, right? And then yeah. we get a similar moment later on where she, where um, uh, VT's character is waiting. She sent uh, the dude up to look to see if- Claudia, by the way. Claudia is sent up yeah. the dude to check out and see. I forget his character's name. Sorry. Uh, Sandro. To see Sandro. Set up Sandro into this hotel where they think mm. Anna might be staying. And she's waiting for him outside. And the camera sort of glides around with her and makes it clear that, like, she's just drawing all this attention from these men. And it's mm. unclear if what she's experiencing is real or her perception. Like, is are all the men swarming her and staring at her? Or does she just mm. feel like they are? And even in that moment, she's still so caught up in her own world that maybe she's not fully cognizant of what's going on. And when she sees Sandro coming down and thinks that Anna might be with him, she goes and hides in the in the paint store, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. And 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 there's a sense in which maybe it's disorienting. It's really weird. Well, but I I also wonder to what extent it's about how. Um, in all three movies, there's underlying threats that the characters don't pay attention to. So that's mm. this like thing going on they're not paying attention to. Then the next, uh, I think, it was it the next movie, the movie after, where there was the nuclear war thing in the that paper? That was in the third movie, La Clis. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. So in other words, there's like these social things happening as an undercurrent, you know, like mm. it, in La Clis, there's all this stuff with the stock market and um, – People losing their money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That our main characters are bereft of. And that's the whole thing, right? Like, I kind of think that thematically, the one, the another thing that binds all these stories is that, like you said, there are all these like cataclysmic events happening around these people. And the main reaction is distance. And one of the things that I read about is the fact that in La Ventura, um, the way, um, Antonioni shot it was that he didn't do the call and response conversational like like you know how they would switch from one angle to the other so it looks like they're facing each other while they're having a conversation in La Ventura he he um, boxed it out such that um, whenever someone's talking to another character in the movie it's one character talking to another character's back right so that way they're both facing the camera at the same time and it and that's like the thing about the movie that it's it's about distance mm-hmm. and nobody ever actually connects because people don't actually 
see the see each other face to face until those weird pivotal moments happen, like when they're making out on the beach at the end or like stuff like that. And then when it goes to those scenes, they switch back to handheld, they switch back to close like close shots and all that stuff. But the rest of it, it's all designed to show the alienation. So it's all long shots and still shots that like, you know, go for longer than you'd expect them to. And even the way that he frames people within the background, like La Ventura is like, she disappears while they're on this abandoned, like this island has nothing on it, right? There's like one little shack. Then they go to all these villages looking for her. There's like no one anywhere. Like, you know what I mean? Like until she's suddenly surrounded by men, most places they go, they're like kind of empty. It's really weird. It's it's really strange. Yeah. yeah, Like when they spill the ink bottle on the paper. Yeah. There's like, they're in a a portico or like what, I don't know what the word would be like a, like a pavilion. And there's only the kid artist there. (laughs) It's like, it's like him and like one other dude. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It, so. There's there's all this like stuff, but even like then the framing like there's a lot of like characters in a corner or in the mm. side, and you see these big frescoes or uh, buildings or landscapes that kind of make them seem very small and isolated. You know, there's a mm. lot of that in all the movies. Um, but La Ventura, and and I really feel like did you it, like La Ventura? What, I mean, where did you land on it? Like as you were watching it, like for me, as I was watching it, I'm not gonna lie to you. At first, like the first half that took place on the island, I found to be compelling. But then, as we move into the search for Anna, I didn't like Sandro or Claudia, and it lost a lot of like interest for me until I started thinking about the distance between these two lovers that. I don't I didn't understand and that's when it kind of drew me back in. But overall, it's one of those things, right? Like I definitely can see film like I've spoken about it with a couple of friends that have gone to film school and they're like, Yeah, Antonioni's the one that like edgy people are like, ooh, I don't like him. You know what I mean? Like that kind of like edgelord, like uh well, you know, I'm such a cinephile that I don't like Antonioni. You know, this this concept of like, you know, holier than thou kind of thing. But um I ended up liking Laventura a lot. And I thought by the end of it, I definitely felt like really this essay on, on we was exactly that. And I resonated with it. I think I didn't like it as much as the other two. However, I did like it. Um, And I very much, I guess what I felt like is that it seemed from watching it and from reading about how it was made it seemed like the series of mishaps and like last minute decisions that created the template that that would then influence the rest of his filmmaking. And mm-hmm. for that, I find it really fascinating. But I like the idea that maybe he didn't have all that figured out ahead of time, that it wasn't mm-hmm. like Laventor was like, I know exactly how this is going to go. But he sort of is figuring it out as he goes. Um and while I well, agree, yeah. with, there's a lot more control in yeah, La Note. Yeah, yeah. And while I agree with you that I didn't love Sandro and Claudia, I kind of felt like maybe I wasn't supposed to. Mm. And I kind of love the irony of her discovering him with the other woman. Like mm. she's all she's been doing is going back. Like th- there's this way he has of portraying people where people are both burdened by this sense of meaning and morals and what's right and then completely capable of forgetting all that in a second and that's how claudia is she's on one hand she's like i couldn't do this to anna it's so bad she's like racked with all this guilt and all these feelings of like how could i fall for this man when we're looking for my lost friend 
And then in just a moment, she's like in a cute thing with, you know what I mean? Like all that stuff goes out the window. There's something about that that was so appealing to me because it felt so true. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I and I think it's maybe a cynical way to see people, but I think it's still real. And I I don't know how he felt about it, but I don't know that those either one of those emotions are invalidated because of that. Like, I think mm-hmm. she really wants to find Anna and I think she's feeling something for Claudio. But what she's feeling is all limited by this for Antonio, it seems like how the modern world works that like Mm. constantly there's all these things going on that show how shallow people are, how frustrating things are, how it's so hard for rich people to care about anything, but money and (laughs) status, they just like talk about themselves, you know? And I don't know. I I, I do think it's it's interesting because I, we mentioned it before, but I want to reiterate there was a real backlash against Antonioni as a director because it, you know, various leftist critics felt like he wasn't, very political. And he sort of said that his movies were political, but not about politics. But watching La La Ventura, I was like, well, I don't think he likes the rich. I think there's class issues at play here, right? 100% Uh, a class essay, for sure. He's at least critical of these folks, you know? So, I don't know. I thought that was really interesting. But, yeah, I gotta say La Note and La La Clisse both appealed to me more, even if there were aspects of them that I also was unsure of. Not as jazzed on. Right. I think La Note was my favorite of the three. That's possible for me too. I liked Laclise despite all like the weird racist stuff, but like, yeah, I, but I did like that one a lot as well. I think the, I mean, we don't have to jump there. We can, we can go to Lenote, but I, I do want to mm-hmm. say, I think the racist stuff is self-conscious. I think we're supposed to be, grossed out by their behavior, but I don't know that it works entirely. I don't think you can really defend the racism in Eccles, but I can, I I do feel like the intention is not that we're supposed to see that scene and think it's normal. Like, I think that scene is meant to show us what's wrong with these people. I don't know that it totally succeeds. And I think if a modern viewer is like, Oh, I hate that part. Like, I don't think you're wrong, but I think if you see it and you think that Antonio is like, hey, it's great what these people are doing. They're doing a good thing. I don't think so. Uh, I think, yeah, you're misinterpreting that yeah. scene entirely. Yeah. And I think I think he kind of hates that woman. Like, the number of ways that these characters who are her friends are like, you know, when, when she says the best is when, you know, first she says all that racist stuff about the native African people. And then she has the balls to say, well, I got to go back there. It's where my people are. Yeah. What? What people? What do you talk? The people that you hate, or, or do it's you mean insane. other colonizers? Yeah. Your like, family? Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know. There's a lot in that scene. Yeah, but I think it's. I think it's not. I think it wouldn't be ineffective if it was just the dialogue. I think the part where they literally try to look African and dance around. Again, it's yeah. supposed to show us that these characters are shallow and goofy. But I think it is more offensive than he realized. But again, you know. That was uh, kind of the intent, I white, think. White 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 yeah. man in the sixties doesn't realize that like the the offensive thing he's doing is more offensive than he intends. Like it, it's yeah. meant to offend. You're supposed to be offended. But if someone said, Yeah, but I'm really offended in a way that doesn't work for the movie, I'd be like, Yeah, no, I get that. You know, it I, yeah. I don't I don't think that's what the point, but I but I understand if someone feels that way. Uh let's talk about Lenote first though, because I have a lot to say about uh yes. too. So Lenote, you know, one of my favorite moments of this movie, right, is when 
Um, what's the what's the uh, actor who plays the main uh, character? Marcello was? Mastrioni. Yeah, when Mastrioni sees VT's character through the window, but we're seeing a reflection of him looking at her, and yeah. then the camera shifts, and we realize we we're looking at a reflection of him looking at a reflection of her. That like we're yeah. actually on two different levels of obscuring the image is obscured by something that's actually see-through, right? By mm. glass itself. That shift is so brilliant to me. It's I, so good. It's it, so, so good. It really represents well, the level of skill and subtlety that I think is at work in this movie. But before we get into that, what is this movie about? Oh, sure. So there's a couple. Uh, one, the, the, man, the, 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 the dude in the couple is a novelist. And uh, he and his wife are older. They've been married for a while. They're clearly not happy. And they have a friend who is sick and is likely going to pass away soon. So we open with them visiting him in the hospital. And very quickly we get indication that the husband maybe is not as faithful as he could be. Right? Mm, Yeah. Uh, And then it goes from there. And uh it's really just like a day in the life where they go through their day and they go to a book event and then later they go to a party and throughout the course of it, we really come to terms with the idea that like there's something deeply wrong. Yeah. Fractured. Well, and and also in her, in her sense of self too, it's not just, she doesn't like him. There's something about, her life, she's not satisfied with it. She sort of wanders mm. around looking for something and even wanders back to this place where they shared. And all the scenes of her wandering around are beautiful. Are silence. Yeah, yeah, she doesn't say anything. Her name is Jean Moreau. Right. She plays the role of um, Lydia. Yes. And Marcello Mastrioni is Giovanni. Yes. And, man, dude, the scenes, like, it was such a wild... Um, disconnect between the experiences of both of these characters throughout this movie. In the first half of the movie, she walks around like she has lines. You know what I mean? Like she talks to their friend in the in the hospital and all that stuff. But her just kind of wandering through the town where she came from, and it's all like broken down. There's a crying child. It's all very sparse and no dialogue, and it's it's really stark. I thought it's very lonely. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think but, that um, that's sort of but, the point, right, is their yeah. disconnection with each other. And then his scenes, the scenes where that are him, he's in these parties and he's talking to, like, the bigwig people. And, like, they're asking him, like, oh, do you always sign on the left? You know what I mean? Like, they're just, like, really involved in the minutia and the sound of his life. In as such that he's talking a lot, he's smiling, he's smoking cigars. And he really, unlike... Um, unlike her, he's really participating in like the the just the everyday of the slice of life movie, but also there's still a disconnect between what he does and what she and his life, and just like the way there's a disconnect between her wandering through her past and who she is. And um, yeah, well, that is a, that's there, the part about this Antonioni yeah. stuff that really was compelling to me, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. The fact that he was able to, I mean, like, it's its really masterfully directed, but also masterfully acted in as much as the two can work together to create this weird mosaic of antithetical things, right? Of feeling popular, but still feeling, like, completely isolated or feeling completely isolated 
and still feeling alone despite being with yourself. Right. And I think one of the interesting uh, uh, connections between these two is one of the differences, right? So in La Ventura, uh, uh, Claudia can't let go of Anna. Like Anna mm-hmm. is sort of like haunting her. And I don't mean that in a sense like she should. It's probably good that she mm-hmm. just Thinks can't. About yeah, yeah, Anna, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, in this movie, uh, what is the well, Lydia? Right? Is that yeah, right? Lydia? Yep. Lydia. Jean Moreau. Yep. Yeah, Jean Moreau's character. Um, she can't let go of the Giovanni who loved her. You know, mm-hmm. like that that scene at the end where she still has this poem he wrote to her. Oh, it's in the so past. Good. See, and that's the thing. And she reads movie. it this to him, and he doesn't recognize it. He doesn't he know what the fuck it is. Who wrote it? Yeah. yeah, insane. It's so brilliant. And like that's the thing that this whole movie is. It is a weird bacchanal, right? Like it's a weird. They're at this party for the majority of the movie, and everybody is like just like so rich that they act like children, right? Like they're all like playing weird games and jumping in the pool in the rain and all this other stuff. There's like a wanton abandon. And by the time you get to the final scene where they're sitting in the field, you realize that like, you know, despite all of that, there's still these two just lost people. Right. Right. From each other. And it's so heartbreaking. It's the most devastating part of the entire movie. Even when Tommaso dies and she finds out on the phone and she's like, oh, when did he die? Ten minutes ago. Was his mother with him? Like, you don't even know the answers to those questions. Right. But you see in her face how distraught she is. But nothing is devastating as when she reads that poem to him at the end and he doesn't know who wrote it. Ugh, what the fuck? So good. I think there's also a sense it's it's interesting because I don't think you could well maybe you could but I don't think it makes a lot of sense to say that Antonioni is a feminist director even though at that time that could be very likely a thing you could be but I do mm. think his female characters are very interesting and I think that this film it really critiques uh in my mind the traditional role of women in capitalism like mm. This guy who, who, by the way, doesn't entirely seem comfortable with the idea that his book has gotten him all this attention and he's important yeah. and he's the one who makes money and gets offered jobs like he gets offered this job. Remember when the when the factory guy who's having this party offers him this job, the job feels entirely made up. Right. Like yeah, you're, you're going to gonna handle the history, the history, of history the and communication. It all feels like I just want this this guy who wrote a cool book to work at my company. But then like his wife and a lot of the other women in the film there it feels like they're they're not given much to do or to be right and mm-hmm. there's this moment where they each you know like she finds someone who's dressed like him and he finds someone who's dressed like her but while the male character that she that his wife that Lydia finds feels like nothing like that dude barely exists the woman that uh, Giovanni finds, uh, played by Vidi, Monica Vidi, yeah, is actually interesting and compelling. And in the end, her and Lydia seem to connect a lot more than Giovanni and and and, and her and her connect. And um, there's a real sense I feel like that, like part of her discontent is this question of like 
who is she? Especially if she doesn't love him anymore. Yeah. Who is she? she? How does she even exist in this world that's so dominated by men's money and men's passions and men's authority? You know what I mean? Like again, that's what makes that weird connection so like palpable, right? Like they say that they don't like each other, and yet they're laughing and drinking together. Right. After she helps dry her off from jumping from the rain and all that stuff. It's so weird. It was definitely one of those moments in the movie where I was like, I'm not really sure what I'm even looking at right now. You know what I mean? Like, but then I guess that kind of, again, speaks to the distance between two people that can be in the same locality. You know what I mean? Like, it seems to be like they're comfortable with that. Right. And and there's a sense, I, I liked what you said, I'm sort of coming back to what you said before, about these people acting like fucking children, right? Yeah. Like, and and they're so detached from real life. Like the the part where they where it's raining and they're all acting like this is the craziest thing that's ever happened to them. Yeah. The one lady starts like making out with the statue of Bacchus, you know what I mean? Like it's like not joyful at all. Like I guess no. that was what was so weird is how haunting it was when it when it's like for the characters they're having fun, but the way that it's filmed, you're like, well, oh, this is upsetting. Yeah, you're like, wait a minute, why does this feel uncomfortable? And again, he like, you know, Antonioni uses these these tricks of like shooting like these still shots that are like long range shots. You know what I mean? Like and like the where like the um, environment is just as important in that it's swallowing up the characters that are at play in that environment. Right. It's just it's so cool. And he uses, I don't know if you noticed this too, Liam, like he uses a lot of stark contrast and like, I mean, of course it's the night, right? But he uses these like really almost ectographic stark contrasts where it's very white and very black right next to each other. Like the scene when the car is driving, when she's in the car with the dude that looks like, um, looks like uh, Mastrioni, right? When, when the, and like they almost make out and she says that she can't, you know, but the scene when they're driving in the car, like, yeah, as it approaches the camera, it's just black and just white. There's no grays in it yeah. at all. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's such like a wild look in a movie that is so rich with texture and with gradient, you know, yeah. like this. Yeah, the, it's just interesting the way he does that and how he flips it between the two. Yeah, I, I, um, I can't help but think about too uh, this idea. Like he he meets this woman who is, by the way, the daughter of the guy who's offered him a job, yeah. and they're at her her father's house. And when she plays for him the audio of the thing of that she's her written, reading the poem, yeah yeah, 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 and then she just erases it because what does it matter, right? Like her role is to wait to be married to someone. Right. It's weird maybe because we we might associate the sixties with a more liberated time, but I don't know that that's real. Like I think that that is, or at least it's not real in this version of Italian society at that, that strata of privilege or it's speak. It's still becoming real. It's still, it's still a, it's still a horizon that has not yet fully become right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just, yeah, I, I think this movie is again, um, La Ventura is kind of haunting because it's so kind of vague. This movie is a little more concrete in certain ways, mm-hmm. but also it doesn't resolve really. Um, it is still about people not connecting and feeling this this distance mm-hmm. between them. Even when they're together, it feels like they're not together. 
Yeah. But also it's about how could they connect in the world that they're in, that everything around them feels alienating. It's like even mm. when she goes back to the place that they know, the way that it's filmed is like you're in some world. He does a lot of stuff where you you feel – the ways that the older world and the modern world are sort of smushed together and where these landscapes don't feel comforting. They feel alienating in a way, you know? I agree. And I mean, like, that's the funny thing because with La Note, you can tell that he inhabits that emptiness purposefully with more intent. Whereas in La Ventura, you can see him figuring that distance out. Yeah. And I feel like La Ventura comparatively is a lot more calloused than this movie is because he's still getting his sea legs beneath them. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then that transitions then to, by the time we get to uh, Laclise, this takes place in Rome. This takes place in a city during uh, like Italian stock market stuff. Oh my God. What a movie this like, and that's the thing, right? Like, so I really loved La Notte, especially that final scene when, like these two people who truly and clearly do love each other, but can't love each other anymore are trying to forward that distance. I yeah. feel like yeah. by the time you get to Leclerc, it's or Leclerc, it's like that distance is the background. You know what I mean? Right. Like that distance isn't a character in the story anymore because Monica Vitti is the main character and she's moving through that distance towards a greater sense of herself. And yet it starts with her detaching herself from who she was when she breaks up with her fiance. But it's also a tragedy in that she can't connect with this, this man that she finds boy, really, you know, but also that's the film to me, it seems makes it clear that that's partly because he's like not there. Like he is this shallow empty person and so even if they have a chemistry it's doomed because how is he ever going to see her and know her when all he cares about is this like you know they're they're basically running like it's again another movie not about politics but it's you know the stock market is clearly a fucking scam in which people gamble their lives away and he like Basically acts like a loan shark, you know, mm-hmm. shaking people yeah. down for the money they own. He's uh, like yelling at people and stuff. Yeah, and then like yeah. there's the scene where like the he the drunk guy steals his car and crashes the car in the river. And yeah, the next day yeah. you see them pulling the car out of the river. With the body in it. With the body in it. And he's like, Well, it's gonna cost a lot to fix all the dents, but I can sell it. You know what I mean? Like and he's talking yeah. about the car. It's so fucked up. He's so it's shallow. So I think um the the thing that I want to circle back to here is that um the way we're describing all this, right? We're making it seem like Antonioni is an intensely cynical filmmaker because these films are all about disconnection and alienation, all these things. But if you read quotes from him, one of the things he wanted to highlight is how much he believed in the beauty of everyday life, that these are films about the mundane, the, you know, they're not melodramatic for the most part. It's like the everyday happenings of life, which can be dramatic, but that Mm. the, the films aren't centered around dramatic things. And he wanted to make those moments beautiful. So in a sense, the fact that they're also so sad and so deeply 
about alienation suggests to me that he feels like that's the reality that alienation is the is yeah, the, is the is ground the floor and then yeah. he's showing you how your life which is probably as alienated and detached as these people <laughs> mm. is still beautiful in a way that the modern world with all its ills is still contains all this beauty and 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 uh how do I, what do I want to say here? Not meaning per se, but uh, sublimity. You know, like there, there's something sublime mm. about these moments, as small as they are, and yeah. as sad as they are. There's something beautiful about them. I mean, the whole final sequence of this movie is just a montage of no people in Rome. Like a- just, after he tricks you, right? Like yeah, he, it's yet again a switcheroo because you follow this character, this I say character, this actress who looks like her, and you think, oh, she's going to meet him, and then she turns not, around and it's not her. Yeah, and then he just shows you all these places where they would be if they were together, but they're not together. You know, they they just they aren't there. They it's are absent so from the film. Brilliant! It's so gorgeous, and it's so brilliant though. Like I was really struck by the end of this movie, and uh, just. It had me like falling out of my chair. <laughs> and again, there's this undercurrent of the stock market, of politics, of see. Of here's the other thing: the threat the, of nuclear uh, war. If the other two movies hint at Antonioni's distaste for the upper class, this movie 100 is the nail in that coffin. You know what I mean? This is like his hatred for for the bourgeois is like on full display here. Like, you know, there's the one guy who's like, he lost 50 million lira, and he's just, he draws the flowers on the, the napkin and all that stuff, and he's like this frumpy old dude with shitty shoes and like an ill-fitting suit, you know? Like, it's, there's no, in, there's no question here what his thoughts are on that politic. There, there is at least an animosity, right? And that, like, yeah. I guess that's not as intense as, like, Godard doing stuff about, like, revolutionaries, like, mm. uh, but I think... It's clear, I think, as a modern viewer that, like, he has a perspective and he's just not interested in telling a story that is as didactic as uh, some sort of leftist screed. And that's coming from someone Mm -hmm. who very much enjoys leftist screeds, you know? <laughs> leftist didactism. Yeah, yeah that's no, great. It's true. I fucking love it. But but <laughs> I get why for him that's not his aesthetic. But yeah. I do think that even in – he's showing you all three – I shouldn't say three, but all the female characters in these three movies, rather, are all very, like, traditional, boxed-in female characters. Mm-hmm. And yet in each movie they're given dimensions and insight – and depth that the mm. men fucking lack, right? All yeah. the uh, almost well, I every definitely think male character is a jerk off in these movies. I'm pretty sure Antonioni identifies through Monica Vitti as his muse in these movies. Sure, sure. And um, it's very clear that she is the survivor. She is the like she is the one who's targeted by all these weird drama moments. Right. Even in the even in La Notte, when you have that like that divide between um, Mastrioni and, um, and when she when she says to them, "You two have exhausted me tonight," uh, she's become so a fucking instrument of their yeah. drama because of their the, battle. Yeah, because their drama, like she is the focus of his lust, even if she doesn't want it, and she mm-hmm. becomes the focus of the wife's despair. And yeah. here she is carrying the weight of both of those things that he that he wants her to help him 
fulfill whatever he's lacking. And mm-hmm. she wants her to see her and see the tragedy of her life. And this 22-year-old, maybe 23-year-old woman, yeah. she doesn't give a fuck about any of that. She doesn't. Yeah, she's out here living life, being rich. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But then there's the line in uh, Laclise when she's talking to the boy toy guy and she's like, I wish I didn't love you or I wish I loved you more. Right, yes. And that scene is so devastating to me because you see just like how like she just wants one or the other. Like, I wish I didn't love you or I wish I loved you more than I do. And well, she's, and for me, the power of that is that then we see them together as lovers. Because yeah. if it was if it was a scene of strength, then that would be it, right? The movie would end mm-hmm. there because she'd be like, yeah. "Well, I'm done here because this isn't going to be, this isn't going to work one way or the other." Mm-hmm. Yeah. But instead, we see them together the most after that's when they finally get together is when she admits yeah. that he's not what she wants in either direction. Ah. Uh. So good, man. So good. I mean, like, this whole movie is wild, right? Like, her mother's in there as a stock player. Yeah, yeah. Right? And, like, that whole subplot is, like, her mom's losing money. Like, millions of lira. Like, oh, my goodness. And it's, like, so, like, it's so devastating for the mom that you can see it on her face in every scene that she's in. But it doesn't affect Monica Vitti. She just keeps on carrying on in the weird life that she has where you're, like, wait, how is that even real? You know what I mean? Like, how is that like a reality if their financial like well-being is so upset by the stock market that the mom's like playing, right? But also, like, I don't know, the the whole stock market scenes are so brutal. Yes, Like, they just feel so kinetic and so hectic. And I, it, it was hard to find a place for my eye to settle. Through those whole sequences. Well, yeah, it looked it looked insane, right? Which is yeah. I don't think inaccurate to how those places actually were, but it felt it feels like these people are crazy people, and what they're doing is what crazy people do. Yeah, 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 yeah. What did you think about the priest walking through the scenes in a bunch, and then the nurse with the baby in the cart walking through the scenes? Um, I think they're meant to suggest something, but I'm not sure what, other than like reminders that there are people that exist outside of these characters, you know. But I, I feel like the priest walks through the scene in in sequences where, like, there's the one where the dude's talking to the lady at the nightclub. Sure. Uh, yeah. I, I, and then the priest walks by. And then there's another sequence where the priest walks. It's the same priest, clearly, because they're wearing the same thing. But he walks by at another scene. But then just as like ominous is the lady walking with the cart. And in the end montage, they both are walking on the same road. You see them crisscross and you're like, huh, I just for it was the kind of chord that struck me. And I was like, I don't really know what this is. I don't really understand it at all, but I'm definitely picking up on it. Like there's another sequence where she's looking out of the window and the two nuns are walking. And it's like, it's there. It's 100% there. Cause I'm seeing it. So that has to be something. That's what I was thinking though, about with Lenote and Laclise, that there are these reminders of a wider world. Like when they go to the club and there's the two uh, black performers, mm-hmm. there's sort of this like sudden reminder of like, the world is bigger than this little sort of space that they're in. And in Laclise, it's it's very uh, sharp to me that we have the stock market being a scam. We have the mm. colonialism of her friend and the exploitation there. We have the threat of war underlying everything they're doing. That like 
she has this small world that she's a part of where there's all these dramas, right? But that there's something going on maybe under the surface. And the question isn't whether it's that she's ignoring these things, but I wonder to what extent the question is in a world where some drunk motherfucker steals your car, crashes and dies in the car. And you don't give a shit. You just how do you, about the car. Well, but how do you yeah. connect to anyone? How, knowing that there's that there's this much death and tragedy and danger just in under the surface, how then do you even build a relationship? Like and I feel yeah. like that's a theme throughout all three of these movies that there's there's this other th- sort of world that's present and it it makes it difficult for these humans to connect. It's not just that they're broken, but that the larger society in which they participate is also is broken as well. Yeah, it's 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 part of the system that's not connecting, even if it's also beautiful. Like these buildings, he keeps showing you these buildings that are beautiful. Broken the architecture down. is yeah. is beautiful, but they're broken or they're unfinished or they are reminding of how small the people are. You know, like yeah. we mm-hmm. create these mm-hmm. giant beautiful artifices that that make us feel small. There's also something about when they're in the town and there's the unused railroad track. I think there's something going on thematically there too, but yeah, I I, I probably need to rewatch it. In yeah, yeah, yeah. Laventura also. Yeah. yeah. Mm. It's a lot. It's a lot, man. I don't know. I definitely feel like I love Antonioni. I feel like after these three, I'm kind of all in. And, I mean, maybe it's just part of my Italian director thing, but if it is or if it isn't, fuck it, I'm in. Well, let's do, let's, let's do, uh, we'll, we'll do another episode. We'll do... I mean, not Pasolini, right away. Yeah, but Pasolini has to be next. No, I, yeah, yeah, no. I just mean like, let's do another Antonioni down the road, and we'll do like oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. the Red Desert and the Passenger or something like that. At some point, we got to do his movie that nobody his likes. Nicholson right? movies, yeah. Like we got to. I want to hear about it. I want to know it. Yeah, yeah. I'm all well, in on them. I'm glad that you chose these. Just to be clear, this was Josh's choice because he had just watched La Ventura. So we did all three of these. I know there's a lot more to say, and maybe maybe what we can do eventually for Patreon is do like uh sup supplemental uh recordings, you know. What but right right now I don't know that we can get, make this episode any longer. We need to get Adriana on to put us all straight because she's smarter yeah. than both of us. So. Well, that's true too. I know she uh, <laughs> you know, she briefly had that really awesome column she was co-writing with Doug about Pasolini films. So when we do Pasolini, we should have her or both of them on. That would be fucking great just because I love talking to both of them. Yeah, yeah. So anyways, hey, y'all, thanks for listening. Um, I wish I could wrap up our Antonio in a conversation or bow. All I can say is I think all three of us really are all three of us. We <laughs> we both enjoyed all three of these films is what I meant yes, to say. And much like an Antonioni film, we've landed nowhere. And yes. Have nothing to tell you. <laughs> 100 fucking percent. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for listening to episode 149. Uh, Xenopunks, as always, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe because that is the currency that podcasters like us rely on to grow and to be relevant in this world where every guy on a corner has a podcast anymore. Sure. You know what I'm yeah. saying? And go, um, uh, go follow Cinepunks on the various social medias. Also check out Sharky's uh, uh, Mechanical uh, Shark Productions. He's got social media for that, and they have a website. Uh, you know, and check out some of the other shows on the network, man. We got lots of good stuff going on. Uh, hopefully by the time this comes out, I'll have a new column up for my out-of-the-box, uh, John. So check it out. 
And also, if you have anything that you want us to talk about, or even yeah. like, if you just want to be a part of the crew, like seriously, we are both really approachable. And just hit us up, man. We'll 100% get back to you and be like, yeah, sure. And then you're going to probably be annoyed that we're your friend. Cause you know. Yeah, that happens a lot, actually. <laughs> Especially on social media. I apologize. I'm so annoying. Anyways, uh, hey, you're, y- y'all are great. We'll talk to you soon. Later. Thank you. Smoke bomb. Do you like spooky movies? Hair-raising tales. Insightful criticism. Judgmental hot takes. Then you're going to love horror business. The horror podcast on the Cinepunks Podcast Network dedicated to all things weird and spooky. My name is Leo Don. And I'm Justin Lore. And every episode, we're going to tear apart your favorite and not-so-favorite horror movies to get to the bottom of what makes these movies great or maybe not great. Whether it's The Beyond, Prince of Darkness, or Inseminoid, we dive in on a double feature every episode, and then we talk about it. Some of our insights are great, and sometimes we just complain. So if we have to suffer through it, so do you. Horror Business, available anywhere you find fine podcast products.